Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is a weekly podcast where we focus on classic pro wrestling. Uh, let me see. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. If you are part of our Facebook group, you can intermittently ask questions about the show. All you have to do is search Stick to Wrestling, ask, ask to join, and you are in. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. We're going to get right in there this week. Uh, I want to introduce our intermittent co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, thank you for taking the time today. John, thank you for having me back. And for those that haven't joined the Facebook group yet, you you have missed out on hearing about Dusty Rhodes' financial planning or lack thereof, the Dusty Rhodes versus Hulk Hogan WrestleMania that never occurred, and most importantly, Jake Hammer's WWF trading cards, which I'm I've heard from Jake that he's working on the backs of the cards now. He's going to have a 1986 Roddy Piper. Um, Roddy Piper's exit velocity, 196, uh, when he was destroying the flower shop. So <laughs> that's just something you have to look forward to. Jake the Valentine Hammer would uh, put up like old tops trading cards from like 74, 75, except he would change the baseball players into wrestlers. So the whole thing's pretty <laughs> cool. You want to get into this. Now, this is what, like episode 245, 246, something like that. I have never said this before. I am convinced that an hour will not be enough for this guest, but I have to keep it at close to an hour because next week we start WrestleMania month. We're going to review three WrestleManias, uh, one per week. I, I love you guys so much. I'm going to sit down and watch the whole thing. Start to finish WrestleMania four for the first time in 35 years. If you know me, you know that like one of my, primary traits as I could I hated WrestleMania for. But anyway, uh I have someone who I, I can't believe I have not met this person or, or communicated with this person until about two years ago when he joined the Facebook group. This guy knows everything. He grew up in the mid Atlantic area. I have no idea how we didn't cross paths, but I mean I have so much to ask this guy. An hour's not going to be enough. But Todd Cost, Todd, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I grew up watching Mid-Atlantic, and I was going to wrestling when I was so young that I don't even remember the first match I saw. I was seeing it before I have memories. So. <laughs> and uh, we were going at, my dad was friends with the local promoters. Uh, I, this is the Murnix, right? Yeah, the Murnix. He, he didn't do books for the, for the wrestling, but they had a bunch of other businesses, nightclubs and stuff, and I'm pretty sure... I'm not 100% sure if he was working for him or not, but he was working as an accountant as his side gig, and uh, he knew him, and somehow we managed to get good seats to the wrestling, and he'd been a fan since uh, probably the late 30s. So he'd been going ever since they'd started having it regular. So, you know, we'd go every week. We'd go to the Raleigh show, and usually go to Fayetteville. Greensboro was about twice a month. We'd get that show, and there were spot shows that they would have close by. And end of the TV tape, and sometimes when they were doing them at WRAL, they moved them about 1980. So um, they moved to Charlotte. I didn't see the TV tapings after that until they started doing them in arena shows. <laughs> now, you met Jim Barnett more than once. You, you, you didn't just meet him. You knew him. I knew him fairly well. Um, I had a friend who was I, – I was working in the music business, and my job was taking me to Atlanta, and I had a – Sort of lady friend with benefits down there. So I would go to Atlanta quite a bit. And one of my old punk rock buddies, he'd been working in, at, at uh, CNN. And he introduced me to Barnett. You know, as he knew I was a big wrestling fan and then in the elevator or something. And he offered to let me come down there. We had some mutual friends. Because I told him I knew the Murdochs and I told him that I knew Gene Anderson. And, um, you know, Bob Mould from Husker Du ended up later on. Uh, being on the booking committee at WCW during the, uh, the, the tail end of it. And he just invited me to sit with him when, at the center stage tapings and I'd sit there and pick his brain and he would, uh, he's basically exactly like people 
people imitate him, and I can't do the it'd be my boy. <laughs> That's about the best Barnett imitation I've made. But at that time, he was pretty much a, a lonely old man, and he loved to tell stories. He'd tell you stories about his exploits with working for President Carter and uh, being on the National Endowment of the Arts. But, you know, you ask him, any, you take him out to dinner, he would tell you anything you wanted to know about all the wrestling history. He didn't kayfabe anything. He'd tell you whatever you wanted. I, I saw oh, wow. about seven or eight times I, would, I visited down there and hung out with Barnett. <laughs> so uh, I picked his brain about it, and there's a lot of stuff that I wish he had written a book. There weren't wrestling books back then. Nobody thought wrestling fans could read, but he had so many stories, and I probably only scratched the surface of them. Like, so I heard all about Australia, the war with Bruiser, and the war in Georgia, and, you know, what the, you know, what some of the plans were that never, never, uh, never happened. You know, that was, uh, it was, yeah, I, it was just, it's, it's astonishing how much stuff is just not even documented. I tried to soak up as much of it as I could. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you just threw out that you very casually that you knew Bob Mould from Huster Do, which is a, a, an '80s band. For those who don't know, give me an idea. Like, what was the biggest thing that Jim Barnett told you was supposed to happen but did not? At one, let's see, uh, Georgia was going to try and go further national at one point. Uh, was one of them, but. When they tried to go into where Knoxville and stuff, it just bombed, and they sort of abandoned the idea. This was like 81, 82? Yeah. Okay. Um, That's probably the biggest one. You know, it was, you know, I don't know how much, you know, he had his ideas on who should be champion and all that, you know, and whether that was any of those were ever going to happen, it's uh, just speculate all day about it. Well, give give me a couple of examples. Ah, he wanted Ron Fuller to be champion at one point. Oh, wow. He was in contention for it at one point. Dick Murdoch, who everybody's heard that he was considered. Trying to think who else it was, but those are the two big ones that surprised Mm. me. But yeah, anybody they were sending to St. Louis was, they were looking at to be a champion. They pretty much knew they were going to make Flair champion from about 77 on. It had been in the works. They saw he had it. Yeah, I'm someone who thinks that they actually might have waited too long to put the title on Flair. He was, in my opinion, he was ready 78, 79. I don't know. They were doing good business with Harley, and Harley was drawing all over the world. Harley True. probably traveled more than any other champion. He went to, he's, a, he's the first one since Luthez to go to Mexico. He did all his Australia tours and, you know, we didn't get the NW champion as much when uh, Harley was champion because he was traveling all the time. Regular before Harley. You know, we'd get him about once every three or four months, but Harley was about once every six months. Now, Todd, you said that you, you didn't remember your first show, but uh, what, what year do you think you first started going to the matches? Well, it was in the late 60s. <laughs> wow. Because I remember the Bolos, and I remember the, the Kentuckians and Weaver and Becker. And Rock Hunter and Aldo Bogney and Bronco Lou, the champions. Now we we uh, hear about Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen a lot. Were they really as good as people say? Uh, they were good in the early seventies, up until Rip had his heart attack, and that's what sort of killed that team. And they were both uh, they were both getting up there in years by that point. And Rip wasn't around a whole lot. One thing people don't know is Rip Hawk was the booker. <laughs> Rip Hawk and Johnny Weaver were the bookers in the pre uh, pre George Scott era. Interesting. George Becker had been booking since the fifties, and uh, he was just putting six man tag team matches on top. And John Ringley, Crockett's uh, brother in law, who once after Senior died, and uh, the rest of the family had a falling out. He's the one that brought in George Scott, and one of the people that was considered they were going to change it out from Rip Hawk and. Uh, and Weaver is Booker's, and the first person that Senior contacted was Jerry Jarrett. Hmm. And uh, he was uh, start he just because he'd done so well up in Memphis. And that was about the time Barnett Barnett had offered him Australia before he completely pulled out of there because Gary Hart had made such a mess of it. 
But then they, you know, then Bill Watts went, got a piece of, uh, of, uh, Tri-State, left his booker, and Jared ended up in Georgia. Wow. And I got that from Barnett. So I, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. <laughs> no, I, I totally it's believe that. Jared, Ron Fuller is NWA from. champion. I never thought of that before. He's, I think he's a little he's, too, he's, too tall. <laughs> yeah, but people who know him from later on, they don't, they, you know, didn't see, they didn't see him in his prime. I mean, when he was in Florida, and there's footage of it. There's a match with him and Paul Jones from Florida that's just out of this world. And Paul, people think about Paul Jones as the uh, manager with the Hitler mustache, but uh, they don't <laughs> realize how big a draw he was in the 60s and 70s and how good a worker he was. I mean, he was probably, the, in Mid-Atlantic, he was probably the second or third most over person. Yeah, usually over in Florida, too. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, his legacy is gonna be, uh, gonna be like, uh, managing the stable of misfits when he stuck around so long that they just kept him, kept him in a spot, <laughs> you know, and besides <laughs> Rude and Fernandez, they gave him a, site, a circle of clowns to manage, <laughs> you know, and let him feud boogie for forever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what you said is true. I mean, in the late 70s, if I went to the newsstand and, you know, picked up a magazine and saw that Paul Jones had just won the NWA championship from Terry Funk or Harley Race, I, I would not have been surprised at all. Paul Jones was a big, big star. Well, they brought him to St. Louis on the regular, so it was a good chance he was in consideration at one point. You know, I can't say for sure, but. I bet it was a possibility. He was a big draw in Georgia, too, and in Texas. I mean, he was a little bit on the small side, but like you said, he was a good worker, and he he really was a good interview, whether he was a babyface or a heel. I'm, I'm just not sure what happened when they made him a manager. Well, it's... Um I'm trying to remember who it, I'm trying to think of who it was that they made a manager later on that they had Jake Roberts out there trying to be a manager at one point and he was very good at getting himself over he wasn't so good at getting other people over Johnny Valiant was another one that could talk like crazy as a wrestler but when they put him as a manager he was he was he was a shit <laughs> yeah I, I liked Johnny Valiant he was a really good funny guy but not a real good manager in my opinion no, and um, I mean, Valiance is another one. People who didn't see their stuff in Indianapolis, and you know, don't they? They see uh, Jimmy Valiant basically working in his forties with bad knees, doing short matches. They didn't see the stuff that he had done in New York and Indianapolis or Memphis. So you get the wrong impression of him. He was trained by Vern Gagne. So Todd, you're you're going to the matches every week, and then what? What was your take on? Uh, yeah, when the the plane crash happens with Johnny Valentine and Ric Flair, do you have memories of that? Yeah, I was uh, I was probably I was about ten years old or about ten or eleven, and uh, I cried. Johnny Valentine was my favorite wrestler, and I didn't realize he was never coming back. <laughs> wow! I mean, he's really who got me hooked. I would go, but it was when Johnny Valentine came in that uh, that's what hooked me on wrestling. It's just his promos, and he was just so believable. And so charismatic, and I'm certain that eventually he was he was popular, even though he was the nastiest heel out there. He was going to get a babyface run. Some yes, it was guaranteed. And even though he was older, I mean, his matches with Wahoo, where they were just pounding the hell out of each other, <laughs> they were something to behold. And I saw, you know, I saw those things up close and personal, and. There's nothing like them, and I mean that's that's my stick of what to measure any other wrestling by is is just that they was just so stiff and so believable, and you were convinced they were going to hate each other. They they really hated each other. You were certain of it. And another thing people don't remember is when Rip Claire got brought in because Rip Hall had had a heart attack. People forget that that whole class of '73 came in. It was Ken Patera came in around the same time, and Chris Taylor. And Ali Vaziri, and I didn't know until years later it was a sheik. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, he worked, he worked on, he worked prelims. He looked great. He was, uh, you know, this small undercard foreign baby face that didn't talk and he'd suplex people out of their boots and then he, then he, then he'd look up at the lights to the stars, <laughs> but, uh, he was memorable, but you know, he, he was never going to get over that, you know, until he got that gimmick on. <laughs> now, if that accident never happened, do you think Valentine would have been on top for, say, another four, four years? Like, how much longer do you think Johnny would have been on top? 
You know, let, let me throw this in, too. I had an old uh, fr- a friend of mine who was a Mid-Atlantic fan, just like Todd. He swore up and down that if Johnny Valentine had not had that accident, he would have been the top baby face into the early 80s. Uh, do you, wow. uh, Todd, do you think that's a, a leap, or what, what are your thoughts on it? I think he would have been top baby face until the 90s. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I think he would kind of be in. A, I think probably toward the middle of the eighties, he'd get pushed down the card, be in a position like Johnny Weaver. But uh, he was still going to be over, and they'd still have him on top in some towns. <laughs> but I, I think he, you know, I think he could have been NWA champion too, and he would have been a good one. There are so many crazy Johnny Valentine stories out there, including one where he's in Argentina and the promotion promoter screws him out of his money. He's in Argentina with no money, and he literally worked his way up through South America, up through Mexico, and then finally back home. Wow. That explains all those dates that you see of him working in Mexico because I cannot imagine him working Lucha Libre style. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's some there's some oddball ones out there. I mean, David Taylor, the English wrestler, his big break was working in working in Mexico in the late '60s, early '70s. So you never know. <laughs> they always find a way to get a foreigner over there. They're probably the place that they can get a foreigner over better than anyone else, anywhere else in the world, really. I think it was around the time of the crash that they had the IWA <laughs> invasion in the Carolinas. What are your memories of the IWA? Oh, they ran shows. The the Raleigh show was on uh, Tuesdays, and it was the Dorton Arena. But the IWA was running on Mondays at this tiny armory in Durham. Yeah, and uh, it was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mill Maskeris versus Bulldog Brower main event that was pretty. <laughs> it it was not uh, you know I was used to seeing world title matches being Jack Briscoe against Paul Jones or. Dory Funk versus Wahoo or Terry Funk versus, uh, you know, versus Rib Hulk or, or Gene Anderson. But no, you get Mill Maskeris and Bulldog Brower was not a good match. And I did see Lou Fez work at an IWA show in Halifax, Virginia around that time and have about a 30 second match with Mill Maskeris. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> he did not want to be in this tank town, you know, <laughs> on a on, on a Wednesday night in front of fifty people. <laughs> it was pretty clear. <laughs> but oh, I did. I can say I did see Luthez wrestle. <laughs> wow. All right, I have a question, Todd. Out of all the NWA champions that that you have seen, that you have witnessed, who, in your opinion, was the best one? Dorothon Jr. <laughs> now you're the second person that I've asked that question to who has been around that era, who said that Harry White swore up and down that Dory Funk Jr. was the best NWA champion ever, and now you're saying it as well. Yeah, my number two world champion of all time would probably be Nick Bockwinkle. Wow. That, that's who I thought should have come in instead of Blackjack to replace uh, Johnny Valentine, because, uh, you know, Blackjack drew, but uh, it was a big downgrade in quality. It was, uh, he was not good. <laughs> no, Blackjack was, was, I mean, he was one of the first guys I looked at and I didn't know what working was, but like, you know, he was a guy who, who noticeably looked kind of slow and bad out there. And maybe that's not fair because we're talking 1982, which is post heart attack and he's older, but I mean, even before the heart attack, he wasn't very good. He wasn't good in 1975. <laughs> But they got him over because George Scott could get anybody over. Well, as when the booking changed, you can see that Ole Anderson could not get every, anybody over, and Dory Funk could not, and Ernie Ladd could not get anybody over. But George Scott got anybody that came in over. Now, do you do you know why George Scott left Mid Atlantic? He had a falling out when they uh, bought bought into the Toronto territory. He had a falling out with the Tunnies, and he took. He was going to open up his his own territory out in Texas, Texas and Oklahoma, and that flopped. And he took Paul Jones and Wahoo and a bunch of undercard guys with him, so they just disappeared for a little bit. And that that explains that promotion that was out there, like in Tulsa, in like 80, 80 81, right? Or 81, yeah. 82. 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I think he had to fall and out. I think it was like the end of 1979 is when he had the fall and out. Yep, and Ole was brought in, and you know it was Ole thought he could replace. You know, I'm, I'm assuming this, but it seemed like his pattern was, "Well, I can replace, put anybody in these spots, and it's going to work." And they bring back, he brings in Thunderbolt Patterson, who does not get a one lick. And uh, Harley Race had to be a great worker because he had to go an hour with Thunderbolt Patterson, and it was a good oh. match. <laughs> You know, Thunderbolt w- was considered good in his earlier days, but we're not, this is not Thunderbolt's earlier days. This is the, the twilight of his career. You know, I am, I don't want to say known for, but I, people say, oh, McAdam likes to bash Ole Anderson, and I really don't, but Ole has, I think to me, Todd, you pointed out Ole's weakest point, and that is that he, he doesn't, realize that you know talent is talent some guys have it and some guys don't and you can't let the the free birds walk out and let stan hansen and bruiser brody walk walk out and paul orndorff and ivan koloff and replace them with larry zabisco and and killer brooks no and now killer brooks was one of his replacements he brought in except he brought him in as crazy luke mulligan blackjack's cousin (laughs) i don't remember i know nothing about this and, uh, Killer Brooks had been here before and people knew who Killer Brooks was. He was working on the bottom of the, you know, mid card. And, and, yeah, but yeah, people recognized him. <laughs> and you know, he'd been in the magazine. So yeah, people knew who it was. They weren't fooling anybody, but that was around the time we got Enforcer Luciano. <laughs> oh boy. Hey, and God. Jaws. I don't know if anybody remembers Jaws where they put a guy in a Jaws match and for years <laughs> said it was Danny Miller, but it was Danny Miller says it wasn't him. <laughs> You mentioned 1979. Uh, what are your memories of the Battle of the Nature Boys, Ric Flair versus Buddy Rogers? Well, Rogers had, you know, Rogers had been here in the early 60s, and but his name had been kept alive. But Rogers came in, and it just came out of nowhere. And um, he's out there saying he's a real nature boy, and they had a series of matches, and uh, they were generally pretty good. I mean, Rogers, uh, Rogers looked decent. There's some clips out there and some of the Cornet tapes. I mean, Rogers is a tremendous promo, and he hung around and was working as a manager, which he was not so great at either. But they had him out there, and there was a bunch of tag matches with uh, with him teaming with Snuka for a bit. But he got pretty, you know, he was just here and gone. He, right. He didn't stick around, and all of a sudden Gene Anderson took his place as the uh, as a manager. The area manager, and uh, it was after Gene had had his stroke and it really slowed down in the ring, and Ole wasn't around. So, and and, uh, and Gene, uh, yeah, he wasn't. He he had the reputation for old timers, but he wasn't the talker in the group. But wow. he could be out there looking intimidating, <laughs> <laughs> and he still had heat from stuff he'd done in the sixties. So, uh, well, he, he did look people. great. Those those drop kicks looked phenomenal, but that was about it. Yeah. We talked yeah. a little bit before we got started about how, you know, one thing that's going to be great about having Todd on, you know, we didn't have newsletters back in the 70s, or if we if we did, they're, they're gone now, you know, so they might as well have never existed. We had the After Magazines. They didn't tell us the whole story. The Kiter Magazines really didn't. So I have been left over 40 years, uh, Todd, wondering, how did Jimmy Snooker turn heel? Uh, Jimmy Snuka turn heel? Yeah. I have no idea. Just one day he's a, he the after mags, oh, he's a heel now. Oh, he uh, got recruited by Buddy Rogers. He pretty much, uh, he'd been working as a babyface against Flair, and it's like you had all these turns around the same time. It was Paul Jones' tour turn, which uh, led to Ric Flair's babyface turn. Because Paul Jones is a... Uh, Flair was feuding with Snooker as a heel on top, and right underneath was Paul Jones and Ricky Steamboat after they'd broken up. And Paul Jones is uh, asked Rick Flair to be in his corner during his match with Steamboat, and um, they throw Steamboat out on the floor. And Jones Flair goes to hit uh, Steamboat with a chair and hits Jones. And then uh, during Flair's match, Paul Jones shows up and hits Flair with a with a steel chair. And cost him the match with Snuka. And Flair didn't turn right away. Although there was a, there was a, he was teaming with, he was going against Jones and Von Ransky with heel partners. First with like John Studd and then with Ernie Ladd. 
And finally, you know, after about six months, Flair is uh, going around and asking the baby faces to team with him. He's asking Johnny Weaver and Wahoo, and eventually Steamboat, and they do the reluctant thing. Steamboat doesn't want to, t- doesn't trust him, doesn't want to tag with him, but people wanted to cheer Flair from the first time he was in here because he was such a great talker. Everybody liked him, and he, he was getting cheers as a heel. No matter what he did, people liked him. So it was inevitable. But the Snooker turn was, yeah, Buddy Rogers had recruited Snooker, is how that came about. And that was, uh, you had uh, Buddy, you know, it was a. Uh, Buddy Rogers was teaming with Snooker for a for a short while. Rogers was kind of, you know, Rogers wasn't doing long matches. He was doing the matches were not, you know, we weren't going an hour Broadway. It'd be fifteen minutes tops. So oh yeah, yeah. But he was, uh, he was, he was sort of aged out, but he could still go. I like what you said about Ric Flair's turn. How the baby faces initially were either either turning him down or reluctant, because that's something I never liked about wrestling. Uh, when a heel turns baby face, you know, after all the dastardly things this guy has done over the years, the baby face just opens up the the baby face dressing room door. Yeah, come on in, where everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it doesn't make. Yeah, I mean, and there's. You know, the weirdest turn was the Andersons. Yeah, tell us about uh, that. That actually took about two years to play out. It was when Flair was still recovering from the plane crash. And Blackjack Mulligan had come in, and Ole and Gene had been doing, a they'd been, you know, wrestling with the normal, you know, normal contenders like Paul Jones and Rufus R. Jones or Paul Jones and Wahoo or Steve Kern and Tiger Conway Jr. And, you know, but. They did a bunch of house show non-title matches to El Rayo and Roberto Soto and were doing jobs for them around the horn. They were getting soundly beat by guys who, Roberto Soto had been a prelim guy and El Rayo just came out of nowhere. And they did the program with the Andersons and Blackjack Mulligan comes on television and says, you need to face some, if you can't handle low level competition like that, you can do no match for me and my partner. And that's Ric Flair. And, uh, and this goes into the flare turn. There's a little bit more flare turns a little bit more complicated. Left some stuff out, but they play it out that Flair's teaming with the uh, was teaming with the Andersons still when he's back for a couple of years later. And this is what led to the flare turn. Is a uh, flare nearly got pinned on a TV match, and Gene Anderson starts berating him, and then he slaps Gene. And so he's teaming with Valentine, and the Andersons is a heel versus heel thing. And um, Flair, uh, he's teaming, he's mostly teaming with Valentine against the Andersons. The Andersons are getting cheered because nobody liked Greg Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of like Ole. Yeah, there's no way you can cheer him. He was going to be a miserable grump. Yeah, who had broken Wahoo's leg by that point and all that. Well, they did an angle to turn the Andersons is they uh, broke Gene Anderson's neck, which uh, in reality, they didn't break his neck. He'd broken his neck back in the 50s and had to, you know, he was having to have another neck surgery and was going to be out. And just Valentine and Flair just viciously attacked him. And it was the other one where Ole Anderson had to go around begging the baby faces to team with him because nobody, the, the heels wanted to decide for Flair and Valentine. And so you go to a series of matches with Ole Anderson and Wahoo teaming together. Eventually, that sort of played into him slapping Gene Anderson and breaking Gene Anderson's neck is one of the things that played into him doing a full-fledged babyface turn three years later, and it got brought up later on that uh, you know that he had betray- he had already betrayed his cousins, the Andersons. Which once they turned him, there was there was always a flare of turn back and forth and. The relationship, the Andersons, sometimes they'd be cousins, sometimes they weren't. It was all confusing, and, and it's like when they threw more Andersons in there, it was just like Arn was sometimes a brother and sometimes a nephew and sometimes a cousin. And that was some, That was when they did not do a lot of attention to detail. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, I, I remember, you know, in 85, my friends and I watching wrestling and being like, oh, he's his nephew this week. You know? but, uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and I'll, I'll try to remember, there's an interview out there with Gene Anderson lying in a bed, in a, a hospital bed. It looks like the hospital bed from The Godfather, where Enzo <laughs> the Baker kind of brings him out of there. And Ole's talking into the camera while this unconscious Gene Anderson is in a hospital bed in front of him. I will try to find 
find that and put that, put that on the Facebook page. But yeah, so the, so the Andersons at first, the Andersons against Flair and Valentine was heel versus heel, but it eventually turned into when Gene got hurt, only asking baby faces to team with him to get revenge. Yeah, that's exactly how it played out. The thing was, is the Andersons weren't working full-time in the territory. They were a Georgia team. And always stayed a heel in Georgia and picked Sergeant Jacques Goulet as his uh, tag partner, who had been Gene's partner uh, after uh, Mike the Judge Dubois had split the territory. And they had had a, they had had a run, with, I think, with the Mid-Atlantic tag titles. But uh, people that were living in Savannah and getting both TVs were seeing... Uh, Oli as a baby face in one channel and, and, and Oli as a heel on the other. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's why I say it is inevitable that Cable was going to destroy the territories right there is, is the answer. You know, you're only going to, you're going to see everyone's storylines and they're not going to mix. This is why when Bill Watts, uh, in, in 92 banned wrestlers from coming off the top rope and how that was going to bring heat and how it was like, you turn on the other channel to the four other promotions, and they're all jumping off the top rope, and everyone's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I know um, our friend Bo James told me that he was responsible for getting the uh, Memphis TV kicked off of a uh, kicked off of a uh, television and Kingsport because he was, you know, he was already working as a teenager, you know, doing shit behind the scenes in the Knoxville promotion, Kingsport promotion. And somebody was working as a baby face in, in Knoxville in and a heel in Tennessee or vice versa. And he asked them why they were a good guy on one TV and a bad guy on the other <laughs> TV. And all of a sudden there was no, uh, no more Memphis wrestling in Kingsport. <laughs> wow. Like I said, it was inevitable. Now, today on Twitter, someone posted an old cover of the Inside Wrestling magazine, and it's a really bloody cover, and it has Ivan Koloff fighting the Iron Sheik. Uh, this is from back, I want to say May, the May 1981 issue. And I'll, I always wonder, Todd, how did that come about? You've got two menacing, vicious foreign heels fighting each other, and they're both heels, right? Yeah, they had a tag match on TV, and uh, Ivan was trying to be the alpha and that, telling the Sheik what to do, and he told the Sheik to attack the guy's stomach, and Sheik, you know, Sheik was a damn, um, I mean, Sheik was the Rick Steiner of his day back then, and his main thing was suplexing people, and they suplexes the guy, and, and the jobber's uh, foot hits uh, Ivan in the head, and they get in the argument uh, in their interview time, where it's like, uh, where Sheik is saying at Russia, yeah, they've got gymnastics and swimming, they win Olympics, but he's, uh, he was in the Olympics as a wrestler. Iran was where the wrestlers were from. And they finally just start, they, it builds up over a couple of weeks and they start feuding with each other. And people were cheering Ivan Koloff because remember, this is right during the, uh, right around the time of the Iran hostage crisis. I believe the hostages were still in captivity. Um, yeah, the, show you how far behind this was in 1980. If it's in the 1981 issue, that shows you the aftermaths were always months behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'd ask me in an email about, uh, the steamboat, them like talking about a steamboat heel turn and that they were playing up as, as Ricky Steamboat going bad or something. I probably have a magazine around here somewhere. Let me give the background of that around the, End of 1980, beginning of 1981, the Aftermags were, were throwing heavy, heavy hints that Ricky Steamboat was about to turn uh, heel. Like, you know, they would do a, an interview with him where he's kind of surly or whatever. And I, I, what I had asked Todd in the email is, you know, was this just a, a creation of the Aftermags or, or did they actually do something on TV where they were hinting that Ricky might be turning? They never hinted anything on TV, but he started fighting back when, uh, during that Snooka feud, or Snooka had entered his throat. And so he's out for a couple weeks. He comes back, he has a TV, he attacks Snooka during a match and starts stomping. Snooka's still wrestling barefoot. And he comes out and he's stomping on Snooka's toes, toes with street shoes, trying to break his toes. And when they had a TV match a couple, a week or so later, like Steamboat is uh, hitting him with karate in the throat and gouging his eyes, reaching his tights and being, uh, being the kick-ass baby face instead of the milk toast baby face. 
And he'd always, uh, up until his first few feuds, that's what he was. It wasn't until uh, Mrs. Steamboat showed up in the early 80s when he was pushing his gems and getting her TV time that all of a sudden he was the goody two-shoes completely. And that's something you went over on the last uh, podcast that you did about Steamboat just uh, not not having any fire in his comebacks or somebody or Jake Roberts or Savage had done something dastardly to him and he goes out and has a wrestling match with him. That wasn't the case in the 70s, Ricky Steamboat. But they had hinted at it because he was teaming with Leroy Brown, who'd been a heel elsewhere. He'd always been a babyface here. I think that's when they started the story because, you know, Leroy Brown was was actually for a big guy could actually really wrestle if you see some of the stuff in Japan and stuff. It was really mobile. But, you know, his gimmick was the construction worker guy, so he was doing lots of punches and what you know, wasn't doing drop kicks or anything. It was all brawling. But they, I think the first hint of it was like, can Ricky Steamboat trust his new partner? <laughs> and not seeing Mid South or uh, Leroy Brown had been a been a dastardly heel and turned on Ernie Ladd when they were both baby faces. We didn't know anything about that. And then we got uh we got uh during that run we got Ernie Ladd come in as like giving a pretty memorable interview that I could quote verbatim. Uh, bad, bad, uh, my name is Ernie the Big Cat Lad. I'm six foot nine. I wear a seven size 17 shoe. I cover the ground I walk on. Leroy Brown, I created you and I have come to destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> but Leroy, uh, by that time, it's like, it's in the eighties. Ernie Lad was not that, you know, his knees were shot. He looked old and he didn't get over. <laughs> and he, his, Run was mercifully short. <laughs> yeah, Todd, I got a question for you. Uh, as we're getting closer to the first Starcade, and and we get to the point where uh, a TBS 605 becomes the home of Mid Atlantic Wrestling, JCP Wrestling, did that really pique your interest, or like kind of make your interest in wrestling even become bigger than it was before, or did, how did that work out for you? Uh, well, I mean. They had uh, all of a sudden Flair had come back, lost the title, and he's a babyface again. I mean, what really got it hot was really the year before that when they had done the Steamboat and Youngblood versus uh, Slaughter and Kernodal match in the cage, the one that you know sold out sixteen thousand in the Coliseum and sold out the adjacent side building, and caused a traffic jam that was going back. Uh, it was a traffic, a thirty-five mile traffic jam on the interstate. And wow! I remember driving to it, and there's. There's cars coming in from Florida, Georgia <laughs> plates, everywhere, and people drove up there and got turned away. Fortunately, I got to see the match, <laughs> but uh, that was it. Was getting hot. I don't know. We weren't. We didn't have cable because I lived too far out. We were. We had. We got a dish, and I think that was around the time that they had scrambled everything on the dish. <laughs> wow. For a while, so we weren't getting TBS. I could get it if I went to somebody else's house, but. Starcade '83. I I was there live. I was at the I was at the at the show, sitting about fourth row, and uh, it was pretty much a it was largely a one match card. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> you know the undercard was nothing special, and I mean there was enough people that were interested in Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant as there were with the main event because. But some other people don't realize that when Flair was away as champion, they were pushing Jimmy Valiant as the top babyface, and he was the draw. Wow! Even though he didn't fit Mid Atlantic whatsoever, but yeah, I, I don't. I'm trying to remember what the dog collar match was on that card, um, Piper and Valentine, and I'm blanking on what else was on it. But I don't know if it piqued my interest because I was still hooked to it, and I was seeing the other territories too, and. It was good stuff. It wasn't, uh, yeah, I started to, my interest in it started to decline a couple of years later when all of a sudden people that wrestling was built on around here were, were gradually disappearing as were the old fans. What do you think about Dusty Rhodes? Uh, do you think he was pushed too much in, uh, in, uh, Mid Atlantic Wrestling and when it became super popular? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Dusty's a great attraction, but he's an attraction. He's not somebody you put on TV every week. And when you're used to uh, wrestling, it's a lot harder hitting and a lot more athletic. It's kind of a big letdown. Right. Um, he'd been he'd been in a few times as a special attraction or as a special tag team partner, but he'd never been a regular in the territory. And 
I really thought that Ricky Steamboat should have uh, gotten that spot because that's what everybody was building for. Was everybody thought Ricky Steamboat was going to get the championship, and that's what it seemed like, you know, leading to the Wahoos heel turn and everything. Right. But Steamboat took a powder and said, "I'm going up north. I'm not uh, not going to get myself because they had Steamboat job under like Ron Bass on house shows and stuff." And yeah, he was one of Dusty's boys, so you know, the writing was on the wall. Yeah, I mean, um, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, just got buried or like they just shut off Wahoo's heel push, like right when, you know, Wahoo's career was winding down. I mean, he stayed around for another 10 years on the Indies, you know, barely mobile. And then I'd say that with respect because I knew Wahoo and really liked him. But, uh, yeah, he was wrestling because he needed the money. But, uh, you know, he's somebody that could be, you know, he should, see, he shouldn't have been pushed away and then pushed way down. He's somebody you could bring in as a special attraction to pop a house, just like you did Jackie Fargo in Memphis or yeah, whatever. The old timer that people have respect for. And yeah, and this heel turn just gave him a whole new lease on life. And all of a sudden that was just cut off. And wow, we got, we got some really good wrestlers coming in when Dusty was there, but, uh, you know, job and Wahoo to Magnum basically non-competitively. That was, uh, yeah, that made a lot of people mad, <laughs> <laughs> including me. Uh, sure. Dusty, I mean, Dusty in small doses, and I don't, but, you know, I, I get accused of being a Dusty hater, and I think Dusty looked out for Dusty, and I think the Jim Crockett promotions might have stuck around longer if he hadn't uh, tried to compete nationally and uh, burned up Jim Crockett's uh, wallet so much. Right. They weren't set up to be a, uh, they weren't set up to be a national promotion. No, there, you know, my relationship, as it were, with Dusty is very complicated. There were times I loved him. There were times where I absolutely hated him. Just, you know, be, I mean, Dusty, the way he manipulated things behind the scenes and just pushed himself and his friends. And, you know, if you weren't in his clique, you weren't going to get pushed. I mean, but as someone who lived it, I mean, what was it like? I mean, Mid-Atlantic, it was like a complete transition when Dusty came in. And I, I'm not going to tell you that Mid-Atlantic didn't need a, a fresh face or two uh, on both sides, both the heel and baby face. You know, they, they needed a little bit of a shakeup, but Dusty just tore the building down and kind of built it back up in, in the way he wanted it. I mean, that must have been, uh, you know, a bit jarring for the people who grew up on Mid-Atlantic like yourself. Well, I'll put it this way. My father had been going to the matches since 1938. When Dusty came in and they started pushing everything about around Dusty and they started doing the, you know, cheap finishes every night, he stopped watching, refused to spend another dime on it and never watched a minute of wrestling again in his life. Oh wow. my gosh. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I asked that one of my neighbors is a, you know, she's pushing 90 and she'd been going since the 40s, late 40s and gone every week. And that's when she stopped going, and I asked her why she stopped going, why she lost interest in it, and said Ricky Steamboat wasn't there anymore, Wahoo wasn't there anymore. And these are the people that were going weekly and paying their money, and that's a lot of people. And, yeah, they brought in a lot of new fans, but those fans were, you know, faddish. They didn't stick around. And eventually they were going to, you know, they would get run off, too, because they just kept doing bad finishes. I mean, yeah, I understand doing DQs and stuff, but doing them every night. <laughs> and another thing is there was people like me that would go see Fayetteville and then go to Raleigh and then go to Greensboro. But they started, Dusty started running the same finishes, the same matches with the same finishes everywhere. Oh, that's uh, you can't you know, get away with that. No, and this is, you know, this was pre-newsletter, but, you know, I was getting the Observer starting about uh, 1985 or 86. But you had that little that you know I was getting that uh combat sports uh sheet back then. Michael Harris. <laughs> yeah, Michael Harris sheet, which was you know what <laughs> there was a lot of stuff that was very wrong in it, but <laughs> you had a little bit you know and those matches it was you know that was commented on that they were doing the same finishes everywhere. <laughs> wow. And you know would you know it's like you know this is fake and people are gonna you know cause I think most I mean I've met some true believers that. It's, you know, recently that still think it's a hundred percent shoot, but most people, you know, I knew what it was and that's four years old. And I think anybody with an IQ over 90 pretty much could figure it out pretty quickly, but they would just play along with it. 
So, so yeah. Todd, would would you say there's a misconception that the peak period of the Mid Atlantic Territory was that you know dusty period of like eighty five to eighty seven? Was it was it a lot better in those earlier years that you were telling us about? Well, they went from being a in the late sixties, early seventies to being a tag team territory that was, you know, they couldn't they weren't big enough to get in the Greensboro Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were running in a smaller building in Winston Salem and running. They were running uh, about a. Uh, there was about 10 towns they were running regular in spot shows. So at one point, they were running 30 towns regular, you know, putting, consistently putting over 7,000 people in the Charlotte and Greensburg Coliseums, running three, four shows a night. And that was, you know, it was basically, there was a down year when they first brought Valentine and Wahoo and that crew in because it was teaching people a new style. But I really think that, Around seventy four and seventy five is really the peak of it. Wow, that's when business went from being a small time to where they went to being the major territory in the southeast. You know, I had things to compare it by because you know with that giant antenna that we had, I could get up in the mountain area. They, you know, they had a large, they had a spark population was spread out, so you had a really powerful signal. Uh, and I get, I was watching the Knoxville wrestling in the seventies too because I could pick it up through a. Uh, through this monstrosity of an antenna we had, and not many, probably not many <laughs> do it, but so I was seeing the Tennessee wrestling, it was the same thing there. It's like it picked up when it changed. And, you know, I saw it, I guess, when they put it on a big station out of Bristol, which is a long ways away from here. Another thing people forget is up until they consolidated the tapings around 1970, they were doing six or seven different studio shows. And wow. All that, all that stuff's gone. Because there was a show, and, you know, and I remember early on, see, we could get the High Point show. If the weather was cloudy enough, we might be able to tune in the Charlotte one or the Newburn one. But they were running a taping in Roanoke. They were running one in Newburn. They were running one in Charlotte, one in High Point, which is Greensboro Market, one in Raleigh, and I think one in Richmond. And so they were, they were, they, those guys were driving all over the place. Oh, and they, Greenville, South Carolina, that was the other one. And those shows all had their own angles. Wow. Different commentators, different angles. Of, you know, it's uh, that's totally forgotten. Everybody just assumes it's Bob Cottle. But, yeah, I remember Charlie Harville on 10 late <laughs> at a high point from one market over. And I'm blanking on the announcer because Newburn dropped off. They consolidated. I was pretty young. I don't remember the announcer's name from the Newburn show, but it was a different show. And Obviously, they were running split crews even then because in the old format was uh, – the old format was – Usually two tag matches and maybe a singles matches, all of them two out of three falls for an hour. As when the, when it changed over, it became, you had a couple of competitive matches, you had a bunch of squash matches, there was virtually no promos in the old format. Went to a lot of promos, short action pack matches, you get maybe, maybe one or two marquee matches, you get competitive job matches. Job crew there was pretty damn good because you had mm. a lot of old veterans working on it and a lot of future stars. Wow. But yeah, I would say the peak of it was really in the seventies, but you know, it's not around on tape for anybody to watch. <laughs> sure. No, I mean, a lot of that stuff is gone. You had mentioned that a lot of the underneath crew from the mid Atlantic area, like we went on to do big things, like way bigger than the underneath crew of like the WWF. I mean, yeah, give us some examples. Well, uh, there's one you've talked about a whole lot recently. Larry Zabisco was in here as a rookie. That's right. Steve Kern. Now, Zabisco, uh, was was he strictly an underneath guy? Was he, he like was a, a, jobber. a jobber to the stars, or was he just a jobber? He was a jobber. This was 1974 or 75. It was when he was a rookie. It was probably his second territory. No, he never. He looked at the lights every night. He might get a win over Bill White on a house show or something. Steve Kern, they actually brought him and Tiger Conway in and pushed them at the top at the beginning. But, you know, one of the things is they'd bring new guys in, they'd get some main events, and they'd work their way on the card. But, you know, Kern ended up looking at the lights every night after a while. We had a Tony Anthony. It was this pasty, pasty white guy, pudgy white guy with a uh, white guy afro. <laughs> looked like shit. <laughs> Nowhere near the dirty white boy. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Fujinami. Because uh, later went on to be Tatsumi Fujinami. 
I remember uh, reading about Dr. Fujinami. I, I have to tell the story about Dirty White Boy. This was – now, Dirty White Boy was in Mid-Atlantic as an underneath guy. Was this like 81, 82? Is that right, Todd? Yeah, might have been might have been 80. Uh, okay. He's around, around for a couple of years, actually. Okay, because Jake Roberts, when he was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling feuding – with the dirty white boy, Tony Anthony, Jake, Jake had the greatest line. He's like, you know, I remember you back when you first started in the Carolinas, Tony. And I looked at you and I'm like, man, he's going to amount to nothing. And I was right. <laughs> I just a great line. <laughs> anyway, so Zabisco, dirty white boy, Fuji. I remember Dr. Fujinami, like reading, uh, well, giving the results. I'm like, okay, this has to be the same guy, right? Yeah, yes, same guy. Mr. Saruta was another one. <laughs> Tenra was there yeah. too, right? Rumbo was in uh, as a rookie. Uh, he had come over from Amarillo. And Tenru was as well. And Fuchi and Onita were in from all Japan, and they were underneath guys that looked a little competitive on TV, but, you know, ended up looking at the lights. You know, they might get a win over, you know, Gene Anderson and Bill White on a house show, but... uh they were basically competitive jobbers on TV. It was a guy given the name Richard Blood, which is Ricky Steamboat's real name, but it was really Tito Santana, <laughs> Kevin Sullivan, Keith Franks, who was, you know, Adrian Adonis. Um, let me think, Buddy Landell with, with dark hair. He was, I remember you know, that. A little, little bit of a push. That was early 80s. That was later on. Uh, Ricky Harris, who later was Black Bart. Steve Kern's tag partner as a job guy, a lot of times, is Ron Starr, who's somebody who's really unheralded. I don't know why he never caught on anywhere, because he was a good worker and a good talker. He was good on the West Coast, I guess. Yeah, he, he got over in Stampede, and he worked Dallas, but, yeah, they, you know, he worked underneath places. Worked Florida, but, you know, never got a push. But when they let him talk when he was in the, in the Dallas, he was great. And uh, he was, you know, probably in his late 40s by that point. Weird coincidence. Just yesterday, I watched Steamboat and Youngblood against Fuji and and Onita from like 82. Wow. (laughs) Weird coincidence. I'm sorry, Todd. Go ahead. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was in as a rookie, and he was looking at the lights. Let me pull my notes out. I made a list of them. It's huge. <laughs> I mean, we we have King Kong Bundy and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Like that, am I missing anyone, Steve? Yeah, you mentioned a ton of them. Uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask Todd this. And you're you're telling us earlier about the lunches with uh, Jim Barnett. In, in those lunches, did he ever really talk to you about Vince or Dusty or any of his opinions about them? It, not really, but he was really respected Vince. Vince actually, uh. And basically saved his ass, and he pretty much had a job for life, but he wanted to go back to Georgia. Right, right. He, he wanted to go back where his people were is why he left. Wasn't any uh, push out, and he really respected Pat Patterson. Yeah. And he respected Dusty as a talent. He didn't like him as a booker all that much. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jim Garvin was another uh, another rookie, and Ronnie Garvin as an enhancement guys, But Barnett, uh, he did not like Jim Hurd. Oh, yeah. He like he did not like Ole Anderson, and he did not like Gary Hart. <laughs> Those are the ones that wow. we shit with. Now, what, what, what was his problem with Gary Hart? I'm I'm just curious. Gary Hart, uh, you know, uh, you know, took the book over in Australia, and nearly killed it, and he'd come back from Australia after Barnett stole the territory and gave him a job, and he tried to politicize his way in uh, and get the book away from Jarrett, and. Uh, Barnett fired him and basically wouldn't wouldn't use him and use him in any territory he had a piece of. Barnett had a piece of just about everywhere. <laughs> That's true. So, he had nowhere to go except Texas. Yeah, he really liked Jack, Jerry Jarrett was somebody he said was the best booker he ever had. Oh, the other uh, underneath team that was there was two brothers named Apafo. <laughs> um, Tully Blanchard was in as a rookie and he was in when Steamboat came in as a rookie and was when Steamboat, before he got his push, was teaming with Tully on the undercard. We had uh, Dan Spivey and Scott Hall in as the American Starship, and that was one of Dusty's ideas that uh, really laid an egg. Nobody. Oh, that was that was bad. I remember that. Uh, Ed, Easy Ed Wiskowski, Ken Dillinger, uh, Tony Atlas was in as a rookie, and he's Tony from White. Virginia. I remember that. 
And yeah, it took him. A, he, he's one of the few that went his way up from uh, opening matches to be to headlining a few years later. He stuck around the whole time. We had Jerry Stubbs in, Mr. Le- Electricity, Steve Regal, Matt Bourne was in as a rookie, John Tatum, uh, Len Denton, and Scott Irwin as the they were in as themselves, and then they came back as the Grappler and the Super Destroyer. The list goes on and on. We could be here all day going over all of them. Backlund <laughs> you know, came in as a rookie. It's uh, funny that you mentioned that Gary Hart, like, oh, like it, it was almost the perfect answer. Like, you know, Gary Hart tried to politicize his way into becoming Booker. And I know, let's just say I know people in the NWA promotion in like uh, 88, 89 who had the kind of the same problem with Gary Hart for the same reason. Gary was try, always trying to accumulate power, at least according to some people that I've spoken with. Yeah, that's, that seemed to be a common thing. And, you know, he basically had his running Crockett later on and his running Dallas, and that's what he's famous for. But uh, he seemed to burn bridges places. And, you know, they didn't use him in Florida after that one run. They, you know, didn't use him in Georgia for years. Oh, he brought him back for spite for a short time. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't last. Uh, he apparently tried to steal a book from Oli. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I think we have a common theme with Gary Hart here, always trying to steal the book. Yeah. Oh, Dennis Condry was guy. He was around as a referee at first, <laughs> and people forget that. And then he was an underneath wrestler. Gene Lewis, so one of the one of, who became one of the hillbillies. He was had Tanaka broken as a ref down there. Yeah, he refed and he wrestled early on. He was part of the Oriental, uh, what wasn't Oriental Express, the Rising Sun. They had him and Kiyosato under masks. I did not know Pat Tanaka was one of those guys. I knew Sato. I didn't know Tanaka. And Larry Sharp was another one. Uh, the future, uh, the future Boris Zukov was Private Jim Nelson. <laughs> and that fooled absolutely nobody because I'm sorry to say, uh, Jim, Jim Nelson is a very nice guy, but he is not a handsome man. <laughs> they could have put the Frankenstein gimmick on him with that forehead and pulled it off without the mask. <laughs> Um, and yeah, he, he was a good worker when he was here. When he was Boris Zukov up north, he was he was the shit. <laughs> no, he was terrible. Hey, Jim Nelson, uh, he was one of the privates, but he wound up. It was uh, Don Kernodal and and Private Jim Nelson were kind of an underneath babyface team, if I recall co- correctly. And then there was a breakup where Nelson got away from the slaughter camp. What happened there? Uh, Nelson was the one giving Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngwood, uh, the secret to breaking the Cobra clutch behind the scenes because they'd been treating, uh, Nelson didn't get picked as the, uh, as Slaughter's partner to go for the world titles in the fictional tournament they won them in in Japan. And, uh, Nelson was, uh, Nelson was the, the mole. <laughs> <laughs> and so he comes back and he's teaming with Johnny Weaver and, uh, then they do the angle where the Briscoes break his leg and end his career and he shows up on AWA television a month later with a beard as a Russian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but, but yeah, some people were dim enough not to see that, but yeah, it's like I see him on, on um, ESPN and it's like, that's Jim Nelson. <laughs> that's not Russian. <laughs> That's the thing with wrestling. Sometimes you just have to roll with, okay, this is a new person now. That's just, that's all there is to it. Yeah, but at least stick a mask on them or something if they've been covered. And the try, I mean, Kernodal getting the tag titles was a surprise because they were almost a jobber level team. They were, they were feuding with, uh, Paul, with, uh, Fort Shop Cash and King Parsons and trading the Mid Atlantic tag titles, which has been basically the, uh, mid-card, lower-card tag titles, and, you know, they were losing, and Porkchop never got a push, and they had won them from, I think, Carl Fergie and Ox Baker, who were some of the ones Ole brought in that didn't get over. <laughs> but, yeah, and Kernodal had been a job. He's one of the few, like Atlas, he's one of the few that started out underneath and worked his way up, because he'd been around since the early 70s, and had been a, you know, job guy who'd Sometimes team with a mid-card guy on the house shows and get a win, but yeah, he usually was looking at the lights and then he becomes a private. I mean, the privates thing was hilarious and they did it and all of a sudden Jim Nelson is out there wearing Marine gear and saluting the sergeant and he's like, give me 50, give me 50 privates. <laughs> go in there and take, Slaughter has a job and I said, go in there, go in there, private Nelson and take care of that maggot for me. And all of a sudden he started winning matches after. <laughs> 
I don't think he ever won a match. Not not anywhere. He was the he he was always he was a perennial loser forever. You know when <laughs> about I mean it's a perfect role for him because you know he was about the most unhip looking guy. You know somebody with a flat top and. 1981, you know, yeah, he was not going to get over. <laughs> but it was, you know, you'd also see a lot of guys that were working their way down the card. And it's like Enrique Torres ended his career in Mid Atlantic after being a huge star as an enhancement guy. And Angelo Poffo, Bill Dromo, they brought uh, Pedro Morales and um, Tony Gurria in, and they were job guys. Crusher Blackwell. Well, he was brought in when he was a rookie, and he never got out of the mid-card, if that. And you had Brute Bernard and Johnny Heidman, Sweet Hanson, doing jobs on the way down. And Matty Suzuki, who was around in Japan up until uh, the mid-'80s, was uh, working his way down the card. Tony Romano, Argentino Paulo, Tony Russo had been a champion over in, in Europe. He was here doing uh, doing jobs. Nelson Royal and Abe Jacobs who have been fixtures since the uh since the 60s in the territory they were doing enhancement work at the end you know the scott brothers were doing jobs and every once in a while when they're short somebody oh uh sunny fargo would uh would wrestle a match instead of being the mild man referee and i went to memphis one time when i was a kid so they had family there and i saw the wrestling there and all of a sudden this mild man referee that wore the you know wild bell-bottom pants is He's wrestling in a main event and <laughs> being a crazy person. And I did not know what to make of that, seeing Ralph out Spargo. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, the hour always goes by so fast. We're almost out of time. But I, I want to ask you this, Todd. You, you just talked about, like, you know, you lived in North Carolina. You got Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. It was a, a very traditional wrestling territory. And then your family takes a trip maybe six mi- six hours west to Memphis. I mean, what was it like seeing that kind of wrestling after, you know, just growing up on a, a very traditional wrestling product? I didn't see that much difference because Mid-Atlantic, you know, besides having traditional wrestling, there was a lot of wild brawls, a lot of action, yeah. a lot of talking. What was a surprise, we went to visit my aunt in Mexico a few times and went to wrestling down there. That was an eye-opener. That was something that I'd never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it took me, you know, it, it, it wasn't until years later when I was living on the West Coast that I figured out Lucha Libre and came to appreciate it. But I had never seen anything like it. It didn't make any sense because they weren't tagging. They were just coming in and out of the ring and everything was a six-man. And a lot of it, you know, after... You know, being around wrestling, I figured out that, yeah, it doesn't look wrong. They just do things different. Yeah. And, you know, you can adjust to it. But, but yeah, Memphis, Memphis is wild. And I mean, there's a lot of guys that, you know, people went back and forth between Tennessee and the Carolinas on the regular. People say Tojo Yamamoto would never get over anywhere except, uh, Nashville and Memphis. He was a top heel in, in Crockett in the sixties. Wow. <laughs> As P.Y. Chang, you know, he was, you know, throwing salt and he was hated. He had tons of heat. And he was a singles, he was a singles heel. It was rare to have singles wrestlers back then, but a little bit before my time, but I always heard about P.Y. Chang. Now he was the worst because when Fuji came in, that's who people were comparing him to. And Fuji's another one. People don't realize they see the Fuji at the end of his career and he was a hard working, big bumping wrestler, you know, when he came around in the early seventies. Yeah, it wasn't a wasn't a caricature like he was when he was seen nationally. I mean, he may have been in, up north because they just worked the slower style, but and he was over big as as Ole Anderson's partner. Mister Fulgi and Ole Anderson were a regular tag team. I had no idea. Yeah, it was probably seventy two or seventy three, something like that. That, that sounds about when it would be. Yeah, Mr. Fuji, I, I know someone who grew up watching wrestling in San Francisco, like, you know, back in the early 70s. And he's like, you know, no, WWF Mr. Fuji, even though he takes bumps, he was nothing compared to the Mr. Fuji who was out in San Francisco, who was said to be quite good. Yeah, it's not a comparison. And, you know, sometimes we would get people like when Don Morocco worked here, he didn't get over, but he was and I've seen Don Morocco in Florida, and he was great. But when he worked here, he worked up, up north style and was really slow, and he didn't get over, and he was gone pretty quickly. 
I, I did notice that, and they, they put together that tag team with him and, and Wahoo McDaniel, and they had their split, and it just never seemed to make any sense, and Morocco, just he just didn't last in the Carolinas. Yeah, I mean, it's people had a certain expectation, and it's weird that Jimmy Valiant got over so big because he was the opposite of what got over here, but he just had so much charisma that people bought him. I mean, it's like the matches you had with him and Koloff were just bloodbaths. Wild brawl, so I get it. But uh people who see him feuding with Paul Jones forever don't didn't see that. No. If Paul Jones was the you know, it was the manager, the mid card manager was gonna feud with Jimmy Valiant, whether it was Hump first it was Humperdinck, then it was uh then it was Gary Hart, and then it was Paul Jones. And Jimmy Valiant's friend was always gonna turn on him. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a guarantee. Buzzy McGraw and Hector Guerrero are the only ones who never turned on him. <laughs> Poor Jimmy. Willie Willie, his buddy from Vietnam, turned on him. Anyway, we, we, we've gone over time. Todd, thank you for being on. I was looking forward to this, and it was even better than I expected. Thanks very much. I mean, you shared so much information today. Well, we got to do another one so we can talk about Johnny Weaver. <laughs> Definitely. I sent you a list of seven questions that I whittled down from like 15 questions and I had more that, that I didn't even write down. So yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do this again. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I look forward to it too. Anytime. Just, just uh, get in touch. And I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm available, I'm glad to do it. All right. Thank you for that. And yes, everyone, the next three shows, we're going to be reviewing WrestleMania 4, 30, uh, 35 years ago, WrestleMania 9, 30 years ago, and WrestleMania 14, 25 years ago. Uh, Steve, thank you for being on. Thank you for, for everything you do for this show. Oh, thank you so much. It was great uh, uh, sitting under the learning tree today and learning a lot about the Mid-Atlantic Territory. That's how I feel about it. And I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does, and he's such a patient guy when it comes to dealing with me. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.